Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. for your word. We thank you for this time together. I pray that you continue to move and speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the early church, they had this thing called the Agape Feast, um, and it was a time that was always in unison with the Lord's Supper, and so they kind of always did them together. Now, it just kind of worked out this way for us, but I'm pretty excited because we're doing that today. We're like bringing back the love feast, okay? So we're having a feast afterwards. We're doing communion during the service. And, and the, uh, I don't know, there's a, a Bible nerd in me that just gets really excited about this, right? So yeah. the, the, the early church, they would gather, kind of the local group would gather together. They would have food and wine. Yes, that kind of wine, the real wine. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul chastises, like he gets on to the Corinthian church because they're, they're participating in this love feast. They're participating in the Lord's Supper and they're doing these things. But you've got those that, ha- that are uh, people of means. They, are, um, they have the money and the power and the ability to get to the feast uh, efficiently, on time, early. And there's people who are poor and starving, and they do not have the means to get to the feast efficiently, on time, or early. And what happened is those that got there early were consuming all of the food and drinking all of the wine, getting drunk, and you have this picture of injustice happening not in the world, but inside the church where those that have the power are over-consuming at this feast and neglecting the least of these. Not least of these that are separate out in the world, but least of these brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is ticked. <laughs> He's furious. He's irate. You can tell, you can hear it when you go and you read uh, 1 Corinthians 11. You can just read that chapter through it, and you can hear the tone that Paul is using As he's talking to this church, he says in uh, verses 27 through 30, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks, listen to this, judgment on himself. 
This is why many of you are sick and ill, and some of you may have even fallen asleep. Now, irony is the pastor who's been sick is preaching on this, right? But you have the, the, Paul is literally saying that you have brought judgment on yourself to the point of illness and even death because of the way that you have treated brothers and sisters inside of the Lord's Supper. This is a seriously bold claim. And, and now why would Paul be so serious and be so, so intense and so irate about the misuse the, of the Lord's Supper and going about it in this unworthy manner? We're going to get there, right? And there's a, lot of, there's a lot to unpack here. You could unpack what, what the unworthy manner was, how they were uh, neglecting the poor, abusing a blessing, ignoring the injustice, but that's not what I want to look at today. Today, what I want to look at is the Lord's Supper itself. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to start, we're going to do a series of the means of grace, and one of those means of grace is the Lord's Supper. We'll have another message on that and partake again, and we'll get some some kind of details at that point. Today, I just want to look at what it is and why they took it so seriously. Paul is in the middle of this rant, irate at how the Corinthian church has robbed the supper of its sacredness. He says in verses 23 and 24, for I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. And on that night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul is saying, The very thing that I received from the Lord, I have passed on to you. It has this incredible weight and sacredness to it, yet you abuse it. N.T. Wright, I used this quote last week. I'm going to use it again today. He says that when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. To Paul, to the early church, and to Jesus, the Lord's Supper was a vital, sacred, intimate part of the life of a believer. But why? What, does the, what role does it play And that's what I want to look at today, why the Lord's Supper was so important. In Corinthians, Paul is echoing the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus that you can read in any of the four Gospels, right? Besides the passion narrative and the feeding of the 5,000, a couple other things, this is one of the only stories that is talked about in all four Gospels. This, the Lord's Supper is of vital importance that every person that was recording the events and the teachings and the earthly ministry of Jesus included this meal. Paul is echoing these words. And I want to read the, our, our main text this morning, which comes from Luke 22. And this is verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, he reclined, talking about Jesus, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus puts it out there. 
Paul repeats it, the early church practiced it, and the church continues to practice it. In fact, if you grew up in church or if you went to church with grandma and grandpa or you were forced to go on Easter or Thanksgiving, you've probably seen the tables at the front of almost all the sanctuaries, right? They're, they all look the same. They like got them out of a magazine or something, right? And they have the, the uh, engraving in the front that says, do this in remembrance of me, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? They all have this phrase, and this is the point of the Lord's Supper. It says, do this in remembrance of me, This is what we are called to do. This is why the Lord's Supper is important, and this is why we should partake in it more often than we do. And in fact, it's a conviction that I feel under studying this, and we at Revival could take this more often than we have in the past, all right? But we'll get more into that in January. For now, do this in remembrance of me. This is the point of the Supper. But you and I and the Corinthian church, I think if we're honest, we're not great at remembering things, right? I mean... For example, you guys know I work part-time as a teller and, you know, providing customer service. Customers come in, how's your day? Good, great, I don't really care. You know, just making conversation, being polite, friendly. You finish the transaction or whatever it is, you say, all right, have a great weekend. All right, I said it a hundred times more than that over the last two days, right? Friday, Saturday, have a great weekend, enjoy your weekend. It never fails, Monday rolls around, I'm at work, and I am finish the conversation, and I say, have a great weekend on Monday after, after the week when you get there. I hope you have a great weekend in five days. Right? There's, this, there's this point where you become on autopilot, right? And we all do this with things that are like rituals or things that we do over and over again. I don't know if you've ever gotten off work completely exhausted. You get in your car, and the next thing you know, you're home, and you're like, um how did I get here, right? Or maybe, I remember one time I changed places of employment. First time I'm going to my new bank that I'm working at, I get in the car, I drive to work, I look up, I'm at the same bank I've worked at for four years, right? You just, we get on things that are routine, they, we get on autopilot, and it's so easy for us to forget, and, and to, it's so hard for us to remember, And I think the Lord's Supper has this weight. It's this command given to us by Christ and followed through the early church telling us to remember. It's a practice that we add to our lives so we can remember what Christ has done. And what I want to look at today, I want to to unpack. It says, uh, verse 19 is our main text. At the end of it, it says, do this in remembrance of me. And I want to ask two questions to to address this issue with the Lord's Supper. And I first heard it's presented by uh, a gentleman named Sam Tinkin, of Missio Day in Chicago. Okay, so he's the one that I first heard presented this way, asking these two questions. And I want to ask them for us as we dive into the Lord's Supper. The first one is, what is it that we're supposed to remember? If that's the importance of it and that's why we're here, what is it that we're supposed to remember? And how is it that the Lord's Supper helps us remember it? All right, so what are we supposed to remember and how does the Lord's Supper help us remember it? The first thing we have to realize is we have to go back put ourselves there with the disciples, put ourselves there with Jesus, and realize that they are partaking in Passover. This is the context of the Lord's Supper. So the first thing we are supposed to remember is 
Passover. That's what's going on. You see in the beginning of this passage in, in Luke 22, 7 through 8, it says, Then the day of unleavened bread came when, when, the, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. This is a big celebration. It's a thing that the Jewish people have done since this point, since the Exodus, and they celebrate it even to this day. This is a huge deal, and this is what's going on right now when, the, when Jesus first introduces the Lord's Supper. We see it take place in Exodus 12 and 13. We're not going to go through all those chapters, but you can go and you can read it. The Passover is this meal of unleavened bread. Uh, there's bitter herbs, herbs, roasted lamb, all of this food, and each one tells a story. It's actually really fascinating. You can get online, get on YouTube, and watch somebody who, who understands all the intricacies of uh, Passover and how each item that they're eating, how each thing tells the story of their exodus, tells their story of liberation from Egypt. And it all goes back to that moment. That's why they celebrated. Each household had to take an unblemished male lamb and sacrifice it and take the blood and smear it over the door. And this was a way of setting the Israelites apart from the Egyptians who enslaved them. And when the final plague of Egypt comes through and the the Egyptians lose their firstborn in all these households, the, the Spirit of God passes over each house that is covered with the blood of the unblemished lamb. Death does not enter the house marked by the blood of the lamb. That night, Pharaoh called and told Moses and Aaron that the Israelites, they were free to leave. He had hit his breaking point. He was done battling with the God of the Bible. And he says, go, leave, leave my land. And you know the story that 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 is the beginning of the story where the Israelites begin their exodus. They are now set free. They are are free from their enslavement. And this is a huge deal. You got to understand the Israelites have been under the oppression of Egypt for over 400 years years. Now it's easy when we're talking about history and looking at things, I think 400 years, oh, that's a lot. No, that is an eternity. Um, Think about Thanksgiving this week, right? 400 years is older than America, right? America's like north of 200. 400 years is like getting back to, to around the time when the pilgrims first landed at Plymouth Rock, right? That's how long ago. Think about all the history you can just remember learning in school. It's all within that 400-year spectrum, okay? The Israelites, all they know for generations and generations and generations is being oppressed by the Egyptians, And at this moment, the God of the Bible, who is for the liberation and freedom of people, has set his people free. And they celebrate it annually. This is a big deal. We see in Exodus 12, 42, it says, It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. Every year, they celebrate Passover as a way of teaching their children and their children's children and generation and generation about the truth of how God has set them free. That is what the, the, one of the things we are supposed to remember at Passover, remembering, or at, with the Lord's Supper, remembering Passover. So they're here. They're participating in their final Passover with one another before Jesus goes to the cross. And as they're going through the ritual of the Passover, talking about all the different elements, they get to the moment with the bread and the wine, and Jesus makes things weird. (laughs) 
that they get to this point and Jesus no longer goes through with the typical Passover instructions. Instead, he takes the bread and he breaks it, which is a practice because they didn't have sharp knives back then. Okay, no, I'm, okay. so he breaks the bread. That was a bad pastor joke. You're, you're forgiven for not laughing. All right. <laughs> he breaks the bread. He passes it around and says, this is my body given for you. He passes around the cup of wine and says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, we are called to remember the Passover. We're called to remember the liberation of God's people. We're called to remember the God who sets his people free. But we're also called not just to remember that moment, but to remember Jesus. It seems simple, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He takes the Passover and he turns it up to 11. He changes the focus, not from this moment that God did then, but this moment that God is doing now and for all eternity through Jesus. Jesus begins to reveal that the Passover is ultimately about him. They don't need to sacrifice a lamb for Jesus is offering up himself as the sacrifice. They don't need to mark their door with the blood to mark their, they don't need to mark the door with blood because they are marking their whole bodies with the new covenant. It says his blood will be the only marker that they need and that we need. This is why John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God has come who takes away the sins of the world. He is both reminding the disciples that the Passover as they're revealing the identity of Jesus as the Passover lamb. And there was lots of confusion. They're like, what do you mean? This is your body and your blood. And there's lots of mystery around communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, whatever church you've come from or background, you may have heard it called, all of those things. And there's confusion and mystery that even surrounds it today. But one thing that we know we are supposed to remember, that Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross, that God who delivered Egypt is also delivering us. He's not delivering us from the oppressors of Egypt. He's delivering us from the oppression of sin and evil and death. And we have freedom in him because of what he has done on the cross. We aren't set free from Egypt. We are set free from darkness. Scott Monite says the Lord's Supper, like the Passover meal, is a liberation meal given for an occupied people. We remember the Passover at the communion table, but we also remember that our God can set us free from sin, from sickness, from the injustices that takes over our lives and takes over our world. We are set free in Christ, and we are called to remember that with the Lord's Supper. We're called to not just reflect on the past of what Jesus has done, but to reflect on the fact that Jesus is ever-present from his miraculous yet underwhelming birth story, his earthly ministry to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We're not just called to remember those things, but we're called to remember Matthew 28, 20, when it says, remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is always present with us. This is uh, kind of a tangent, but stay with me. 
The problem of evil is a complicated subject. And oftentimes when discussing it with people, you need discernment and wisdom and the Holy Spirit to guide your thoughts. And you can't address it in one sermon or even in one sub point. But I want to talk about it for a minute because I was reminded as I was going through and studying this fact that Christ is ever present with us, that evil exists no matter what. No matter what religion or non-religion or non, however non-religious you are, we're surrounded by it. But the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible who has the power, who is over all things, could have just stood up and said, man, stinks for them. But the God of the Bible chose to put on flesh and blood and willingly experience the same suffering and evil that you and I experience. God, Jesus Christ is present. He knows what it's like to experience evil. We weren't left to deal with it all by ourselves, but he went to the cross and he let evil have its way, which ultimately took his life. But he didn't stay dead. He dealt with the evil and rose from that grave and empowers his people to be the kingdom of God, to be the church, which is slowly infecting the world with the presence of God, changing it, transforming it till the day he returns and all will be made new and evil will be gone for good. But in the, but right now, as we deal with the things, as we focus, as we experience the heartache of entering the holidays with those that we've lost, as we look at the wars going on in Israel and Ukraine and all the stuff overseas, as we think about the evil that happens every day that is unnamed and untalked about, we know that we are not left in this evil alone, that Jesus experienced it and his presence through his spirit is with us now even as we face evil. We do not suffer alone because Jesus, the God of the Bible, knows what it's like to suffer and he is ever present with us. We remember that when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We remember, yes, Jesus and his earthly ministry and his history, but we also remember him present now. So that's what we're called to remember. We're called to remember Passover and Jesus. But how does the Lord's Supper help us do that? The first thing I want to point out is that the Lord's Supper is holistic, all right? It's mind and body physical elements. You can feel it with your fingers. You can taste it with your mouth. You can see it. You can smell it. You can experience it, right? It's not just a mental thing. When we think about remembrance, a lot of times we go and we think about our uh, mind and it being a mental thing and and remembering, but the, the, the Lord's Supper teaches us that worship is not just about being a brain. One author says we've reduced humanity to being brains on a stick, okay? That's not the, the, the way we're taught to worship in the Bible, especially through the Lord's Prayer, teaches us that we're not just brains on a stick, that worship matters. It's all of us. It's mind and body. And this is incredibly encouraging, especially if you know or know anybody or have a family or experience any kind of mental illness. This means that the, the, the professor with 10 years of experience and 17 PhDs has the same value as the, the child that has severe autism. Because it's not just your mental capacity that makes you in the image of God that gives you value. It's each and every person in the image of God is valuable. When we worship, it's not just about the mental concept of worshiping. It's a whole body experience. And communion teaches us that. It teaches us as we feel and experience the senses of communion of the Lord's Supper, that it's not just about mind, but it's about mind and body. So it's holistic. It's also sacred. 
We believe that there's two sacraments in the church. That's the, the church word, sacraments. You've got baptism, right, and you've got the Lord's Supper. And these things are physical actions that, that gives weight to words, right? If you've ever read poetry or if you like music, you know that there are emotions and feelings that we just don't necessarily have the words to explain, right? The word love means I love pizza, but it also means I love my wife, right? Like there's, there's a limit to our language, and things like sacrament, there are actions that allow our words to have a little bit more weight. Like I can tell you that, that I promise I'll keep my end of the deal. But we know that we add things like a handshake or the signing of a contract, these actions that add weight to the words. The words have meaning, they have value, but there's actions that add to them. St. Augustine said that... Uh, Sacraments are an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. An outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Lauren and I don't like to be apart, but there are times where maybe the girls are out of school and I'm not out of work. And so they'll like take a trip up to North Carolina to be with the family and it'll be all the girls up there and me home and it's lonely and sad. And, you know, there are times where like I'll work all day and she'll be with the kids all day and, and with her family and busy. And it ends up, we've text back and forth throughout the day, but then it gets to be like nine o'clock and I'm ready for bed and we haven't really talked. And so we'll get on the FaceTime or, or phone call and we'll have like a two minute conversation. Romantic, I know, right? Like, hey, I love you. Think about you. I'll see you later. There's just something about a phone call that's not the same, right? So we have words and we express those words and we talk through texting and, a face, and FaceTime. But then there's that moment. And if you've ever loved someone and been apart, you know that moment when you finally get back together, right? And it's like you see each other and you walk up we give each other, we give each other this big hug, and it's almost like you just squeeze, maybe even hold your breath a little bit. I don't know why I hold my breath, but it's like, you know, and there's this moment, there's this moment where that hug just becomes so tangible and real, and I have these words, but even I love you just seems to fall short about how glad I'm uh, to be, how glad I am to be back and with my family and my spouse, Sacraments are an outward visible sign, like a long hug after days spent away, of an inward invisible grace, like the love shared between two people. An outward visible sign, like the bread and wine around a table of community, of an inward invisible grace, like Christ's body broken, Christ's blood poured out for our liberation. The Lord's Supper helps us remember by knowing that our worship is holistic. It's holistic. It's sacred. And this last word is it's temporal. I really didn't want to use that word, but I couldn't find another one. I used this word. What I mean is it it's, has to do with time, okay? It's relating to time. We, we take this past moment, this Lord's Supper, this communion, this past moment, and we bring it into the present. N.T. Wright says it like this. The hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing the past story and divine action of the past into the present, such that the present audience becomes a part of that story and receives the benefit from such actualization. What N.T. Wright is saying here is that we are invited to look at time in a different way. 
when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we don't just look at the past and remember it with awe and wonder, but we bring that story into the, into the present and become a part of that story ourselves. We don't just remember the Passover. We don't just remember Jesus' redemptive act on the cross. When we share this bread and this juice in a few minutes, we trust that this is the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is here now present in the mill, present with us. During this communion, he is dining and communing with us. Now, there's lots of debate. There's been mighty mighty church splits over this and other issues. There are like... The, the Catholic tradition believes in, big word, you ready? Transubstantiation, all right? You don't have to remember that. But what they believe is that the bread and the juice or the wine literally transform into the blood and body of Jesus. Now, I don't fall into this camp. I think that that kind of goes too far in almost re-crucifying Jesus, but we know he died once and for all. So I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Then there's more of a, a Lutheran perspective, which they believe that, that this is a paraphrase, okay? So if somebody might disagree with me, but, but they, they use consubstantiation. Don't have to remember that word. Basically, they think that the body and blood of Jesus coexist with the bread and the wine. So they're both kind of there together. Again, for same reasons, I don't think this is accurate. I find myself understanding it the way the theologians that I have read understand it, which is kind of typical. Okay, it might be biased. I probably am. But you you take John Wesley and John Calvin, those that kind of follow their teachings tend to butt heads on a lot of issues. The two kind of agree on this fact, that the the bread and the, the wine, they don't literally transform, but somehow mysteriously, the presence of Jesus is with us as we partake in communion. It's, and the church has kind of fallen into another camp called memorialism, right? Where they believe that the communion is just about remembrance. And the truth is, it is about remembrance, but I think we have to redefine remembrance. Because it's not just sitting here thinking about what's going on. We believe that when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, it means that he is physically there, literally there with us. And there's debates on how that's even possible, whether it's through his spirit and everything like that. But we're now we're getting, what I want us to understand is that this, we're saying that the Savior of the world, he who died on the cross, is present with us as we partake in this meal. It helps us remember all that Christ has done for us because when we participate in communion, we realize that it's more than just remembrance. And this is important, and I want to say it again, kind of make, make sure this point is clear. In a few minutes, when we take this bread and we drink this juice, we trust that Jesus is here now once again. Like he was back in Luke, blessing this meal, breaking this bread, pouring this wine, uttering those familiar words, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. This is why when we we teach that communion is for believers only, the Lord's Supper is a sacred, intimate time. It's a moment when your Savior is with you as you participate. So close your eyes, sit in silence, fall to your knees, stand and dance, whatever you do, I just want you to see Jesus. 
See the holes in his hands as he hands you the bread. Hear his voice as he passes you the cup. Commune with him as you partake in this meal. It's a love feast because we see the love that the Savior poured out for us, going to the cross, being broken, that we might have life. Instructions so that we can kind of have an order to this and you know what's going on. Uh, I want us to take communion together as a church family. That's how it was done in the beginning. I want us to do that again. So while the song is playing, prepare your heart.